welcome to the Italian Wine Podcast. This episode has been brought to you by the Wine to Wine Business Forum 2022. This year will mark the ninth edition of the forum to be held on November 7th and 8th of 2022 in Verona, Italy. This year will be an exclusively in-person edition. The main theme of the event will be all-round wine communication and tickets are on sale now. The second early bird discount will be available until September 18th. For more information, please visit us at winetowine.net. Welcome to the Italian Wine Podcast. I'm Cynthia Chaplin, and this is Voices. Every Wednesday, I will be sharing conversations with international wine industry professionals, discussing issues in diversity, equity, and inclusion through their personal experiences working in the field of wine. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and rate our show wherever you get your pods. Welcome to Voices. I'm Cynthia Chaplin, and today I'm so happy to have Laura Louise Green on the show with me. Laura is a licensed professional counselor and an organizational consultant based in Chicago, and she's the founder and owner of Healthy Poor, a consultancy focused on improving mental health and well-being within the hospitality and the hospitality adjacent industries. So thank you so much for joining us, Laura. I'm very excited to talk about this topic today. Oh, same. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Great, great. So just to get a little bit of background, um, I know you were in the hospitality industry yourself for almost 20 years. What kind of jobs did you have and what made you pivot from working inside the industry to working to help the industry itself? Oh, for sure. So I started in the industry when I was 16 at like a small sushi shop in my hometown. (laughs) And then I decided to get a job as a busser at the American Girl Place Cafe. So I had very humble beginnings. Um, But my career really started because I was working in theater and music. And so, you know, it was a job that I had all through university. Um, And then I would go on, you know, I would get a job, I'd work on stage, and then I would come back to being a server in the restaurant. And I wasn't, you know, candidly, I wasn't particularly good at it or honestly even interested in it. Like I joked that I was the worst server ever because people would be like, what kind of beer do you like? And I'd be like, I don't like beer. (laughs) I was really not, I was not the best. I was not the best. But yeah, I worked and this is relevant. So I worked, I was in a rock band for a while and we had signed to a major label. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's a little tidbit of information that I didn't uh, find in my in my research. Yes, I'm trying to scrub the internet up. It. <laughs> it's like a whole thing. But I was touring for a while. And, you know, hospitality was always there to catch me in between tours. So I would go from this like rock star, really wild rock star lifestyle, and then back into restaurants in between, you know, that was around 2009, 2010. So just after the major recession. So, you know, money wasn't in music in the same way. Like they weren't giving out million dollar advances. It wasn't like that. But when that came to an end for me, I needed a job and I came to bartending. And that's when I started really working in craft bartending. And I started, you know, drinking, dare I say, proper wine and proper spirits. And, you know, the craft spirits boom was just starting. The cocktail revolution was really coming into play. Like, it was a really cool time to start to care about hospitality and drinks, you know, where it had been a, a sort of like 
career pastime, this sort of like um, catch-all situation for me, suddenly I was like, wait a second, this is gorgeous. But the reality was that I went from, you know, touring with this rock band, which is, you know, of course, full of drugs and alcohol and chaos and just like this wild behavior. But honestly, hospitality was like jumping from from one hot pot to another. And there, it, I just found myself thinking like, gosh, I don't know that I can, I don't know if I can keep living like this. And I loved working in hospitality and I loved my colleagues and I loved the way that I got to create cocktails and collaborate with my colleagues and chef and like the doors that it opened globally to me. Um, it was just so cool. I loved it. But I was like, if I keep going the way I am, I'm not going to live to see 40. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It is a hazard. You know, if if anyone listening to this, if you knew me, then, <laughs> it is. But I was I was kind of a wild, wild one. I had a great time, but it was it was it was a lot. And I knew it was a lot. So I did a lot of soul searching and I had started seeing a therapist and I just found my work with her so helpful. And I started questioning a lot of stuff about career. Why do we decide to go into certain careers? Why, you know, and what does that do to us? How does it, how do we tie it into our identities? And so I went back to school to be a psychotherapist. And by the time I graduated and was ready to start like practicing properly, my career in drinks had elevated to a space that I was feeling really conflicted. Like, I don't know if I can leave this industry. I really love it. And the way that I resolved that conflict was to realize that all the reasons that I was leaving through school and through my academic and scholastic work, I had been building skills all along to address those problems. So I, <laughs> my parents were like, what is happening right now? But I decided to go and work for a distributor and incubate my ideas and sort of hone my research and, you know, live this sort of dual life of working in distribution and import and spirits education. And then also conducting research about stress, burnout, and substance use in the hospitality industry and really starting to dig into patterns and structures of like, what is, what is happening here that is causing all of these problems? And what is it about the industry and the people coming to and working within this industry that makes people especially vulnerable to these issues? So yeah, that's the story of how this all got started. If you asked me in my like, 16 year old Laura sushi days that I would be doing this work. I'd be like, no, don't, don't say that. But I love it. This is, I love the chaos that brought me here. That is, that's a really cool sentence. Actually. I love the chaos that brought me here. That's, that is, that, that's something that, that needs to be addressed even more. But so after, after this chaotic, um, sort of chaotic life that brought you to this moment, you started healthy poor and, You've said that you started it to educate and empower individuals working in careers and positions that are often overlooked and exploited within the wine and spirit sector. So how does Healthy Poor achieve those goals? What actions are you taking? What services are you providing for people who need your help? For sure. So to be candid again, it's it's a constant I feel I hate this word just because it's so overused, but I'm I feel like I'm constantly pivoting in everything that I do, like trying different interventions like is this going to work? Is this going to make an impact? Can we try this? You know, one of the reasons I moved away from practicing as a therapist was because I wanted to have a more macro impact, like working with one person at a time. It's really, it's really extraordinary work. And I've even considered going back to working therapeutically with clients, but 
I wanted to have like a more overreaching, like fell swoop approach. So some of the ways that I do that is through individual like seminars and courses. So like right now with Healthy Poor, I'm going into this big six month long initiative to provide free education for anybody who wants to attend. So that's one way. And education at its baseline is so important when talking about these issues because so many people know that they're experiencing something and they're feeling it, but they're, they don't have the words for it or they can't quite articulate it or they don't know that everyone else is experiencing it too. Or the fact that they're experiencing it is a normal and rational reaction to the circumstances that they're in. So education. Absolutely. I, I, yeah. I think our I think our industry also um, teaches us to to hide any insecurities that we have to you know sort of put pack that away in a box. Don't let anybody know about that. You know, if you show sign of weakness in in wine and spirits, um, it's likely not to do you any good in your career. And I think that's due to um, I mean to the point about the exploitation and the you know the other bits about you know sort of this forgotten and invisible industry. So many of us are expected to do this like emotional labor, this deep acting to put on a show, you know, to always be on. You have to like there's this perfectionistic piece that comes in about our humanity that's unfair and robot like. Like I have a colleague here in Chicago that's like, I'm not a vending machine. Like I'm a human being, <laughs> you know, very like true. we have to that be, I mean, in wine, true. we have to be so polished and put together and professional, but also fun and engaging. And like, we have to put ourselves into these boxes and doing that without acknowledging that there's a whole person there, it really does strip us of our humanity. And what I see a lot in my work, and I started to realize it, especially when I was behind the bar and like people would take photos of the bar and I would be in it. And at that time I was like seeing clients and I'm like, I don't want to be on your Instagram. And I realized that to them, I was a fixture in their experience, like the sconce on the wall. I was part of the design and yeah, it was, and at that point, and they don't need your permission. Exactly. I don't, I don't need your permission because you're here for me and you're here to fulfill my experience. And there's, there's problems with that too, in terms of how we approach hospitality. But, um, you know, I started digging in a little bit more to that sort of like objectifying and dehumanizing piece. And I mean, the research also, it's, it's a forgotten industry. Like I'm studying, I'm doing another master's in organizational psych right now. And there's more research in hosp- for hospitality coming out, but it's mostly hotels. There's some like SME work, but even I was talking with Beck Hopkins from A Balanced Glass and she was like, is there any research about like wine sales? And I'm like pouring through like my school's directory, the articles. I cannot find anything about, you know, really anything about wine sales or sales of controlled substances or, you know, I wonder if you experienced this too, but when I was working in distribution, so many people said to me, I didn't even know that was a job. And I'm like, oh, is that, this is a job <laughs> for sure. Absolutely. I I think that that's, yeah. And I, I do think that sort of our industry is very glamorized. Um, you know, people say, oh, you work in wine. That must be great. They're, you know, they forget that the, the verb in there is work. And 
what you said about you know, having to be on point all the time, having to be serious and knowledgeable, but fun and witty and, and photographable and all of those things. It's very hard to do that at, at the same time. And a lot of people don't know what we do. Many people don't understand what kind of careers happen in wine and spirits. And there are so many, we know, you know, there are, there are so many. There's communication, education, all sorts, producers, buyers, importers, exporters, everybody. But most people are really unaware of all of those layers of careers within the sector. It just, it's wine and spirits, must be fun, everyone's drinking. And that's really not the case. That's that's exactly right. I mean, even, you know, I mentioned my parents being confused about me not being a therapist and working for a distributor, an importer. And you know, there is this mindset of like, oh, Laura drinks for a living. And I'm like, oh my God, I look at spreadsheets for a living. Exactly. <laughs> <You know? laughs> right? You know, it's um it's it's really it's really tough. And so then when we're in a place where we're struggling, the stress of the job, you know, it's it creates this cognitive dissonance of like, gosh, this is a really tough job. It's very high pressure. There's a lot of moving parts. But I'm also in this job that's supposed to be like party central and I'm supposed to be grateful to have it and all of this stuff. So it makes it really hard then to to really dive into that gray area and say and explore the dualities of like, yeah, this is a great job, but I'm also really struggling here. And the closest thing that I can get to to coping is the thing that I'm selling or the thing that I study or the thing that I talk about. Right. And it's delicious and I love it. And so it blurs a lot of these lines in a way that's hard it's it's hard to sort through. Exactly. I think everybody who's in the industry has has had those moments. I certainly have. I know most of my colleagues, you know, people I'm close to have had them as well. So what what kind of you know, what kind of issues, what kind of problems do your clients bring to you? Right now I'm working a lot with um they come to me talking about things like retention or you know, we can't find people to work with us. And the reality though, it's like, that's the symptom, that's the result, but the, the it's the other stuff underneath that's really the problem of, from an organizational standpoint, right? Let's say you have, in, a, in an organization, everyone seems to be drinking a lot. So we can say like, okay, everyone's stressed. And our tendency as a society is to say, well, let's look at stress relief. But in my work, what I do is I say, well, what's causing the stress? <laughs> like, that's, we need to go a, really a little bit yeah. dip, We need to go a little bit deeper and look how are roles defined? Are we are we clear about expectations? Is there a system of feedback within the organization? Do people have voice? Are able are people able to be themselves as at work? Is there a cutthroat environment? How are managers how are line managers communicating with their teams? You know, those are the things that I really start to look at. And we see definitely a slew of mental health issues that are happening in the industry, but it's really coming from these like cutthroat toxic monoculture like people trying to fit into a culture that they're that doesn't express who they are really and just like cutting themselves into little pieces in order to fit in and you know splitting off parts of themselves that are maybe not desirable to this massive like monoculture that you know wine embodies or spirits embodies or a restaurant you know it's all of these things all of like those really gross nasty insidious like Stranger Things, the upside down. It's what it, it reminds me of that. It's the underbelly that we don't like to look at. Yeah. Well, I'm, 
Yeah, I'm sitting here nodding, which you can't see, but yeah, I, I completely, I completely get that, um, and it is um, endemic in our industry for sure. I, I just want to touch on something that I know you, you've said in the past. You said that you wanted to do whatever you can to make the industry safer for people working in it. So uh, let's just talk about that for a minute. What do you see as unsafe in the hospitality industry, like? specifically what what kind of issues you know i know what i think of as unsafe but i'd love to hear from you as you have you're the professional <laughs> fortune and i want to hear what you have to say too because it's always i oh my gosh i love i love hearing from people and what they see and i build my whole business really on the feedback that i get from the community and clients and what i see on facebook it's all it's all qualitative data to me you know and i can take it up and wrap it into a neat package or at least try to on canva and try to deliver something but um the stuff that i would see as unsafe i would say the things that are the most unsafe are the things that we actively celebrate at the same time so an example of that would be this expectation of constantly working and it might not be like having an organization be like, you need to work 60 hours a week, but that your social media presence is also an extension of your work. That when you go out to eat or drink, it's also an extension of your work. That you're expected to go to events after work for work, and they're framed as a work perk, but it's still work, right? So then... This is all so true. We have all experienced... I have definitely had all of those experiences. And this is even like a gentle, <laughs> gentle example of it. You know, so then we're like, oh, but no one has any work-life balance. Well, of course we don't. And when we talk about work-life balance, we're not even talking about time. Work-life balance is more about our identities and the roles that we carry. So if your role as a friend, if you're only friends with people who you work with, either in within your organization or tangentially, like in industry-wide, in the professional community, you're still at work. Your role is still wine professional, spirits professional, drinks professional, hospitality professional. You're, it's hard then to separate from work because work is all, everything becomes work. If you marry someone who works in the industry, your marriage becomes work. And we see that a lot. So it's not necessarily about time. It's the way that we view ourselves. And so a lot of things I tell people around work-life balance is, you know, what other identities do you carry? What are your hobbies? And lean into those more. Give those things more space in your life. Because then when we, what we saw during the pandemic is people didn't have access to their identity as beverage consultant or bar director anymore. And it was really hard for people. It was a lot of like, I don't know who I am if I'm not this. Exactly. And that's really, that's really scary. Yeah, exactly. That, that's all very true. And I think, you know, add to that the whole Zoom culture that arose during during the pandemic, a lot of people in our industry had to had to move from in person, you know, events, courses, all tastings, all that sort of stuff to to Zoom, which um, wasn't wasn't always best for everybody's mental health either. Um, being on a screen all day and not really interacting with people, so yeah, that's it. And it was very easy at home to spend way more hours doing your job, doing one's job during the pandemic because there was no line between now I am going home. Oh my gosh. In those early days of the pandemic, I was, you know, I was still working for the distributor, but I was trying to like, you know, I was putting in so many hours because I wanted to prove that I was working because there's also this like, you know, and I can't really point to my former employer with this. This was a problem with all organizations as we sorted out like, what does organizational trust look like? That's a very good question. You know, 
what does that look like? And we, at that point, none of us had the systems or even the thought to be like, do I trust people to be doing their work from home? And what does that trust mean? Is is it actually like, it's not that I don't trust them, but I'm concerned for them. Do we have the emotional intelligence in our industry to be able to understand the difference? Can we connect with each other in a way that we really need to, right? Do we have the emotional intelligence to do that over Zoom? Exactly. And I don't think I don't think most of us do, you know. No, I, I I have to agree with you on that. And it's not it's not a burn. It's 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 just it's the realities of it. And I think it's why people just felt so so alone. Absolutely. But at the at the same time, it was interesting because I thought, you know, when this all went down, I thought like, oh my gosh, people are going to have a really hard time. But then I saw so many people thriving and I was like, oh my gosh, they're removed from the environment. They're removed from this environment where they were behaving a certain way. Now they don't have to behave that way and they're able to behave how they want. What is that? Which is another incredible point. Another incredible point. And one of the things that, that got me to you was um, a quote that I that I found that you had said a while back about how our industry you know, without an ongoing and consistent commitment to fostering belonging, individuals are asked to fracture themselves in order to conform and appease an oppressive narrative. I, I really want to dig into this because I think you're you're getting there um, without using that language. Can you just explain sort of what this concept is, the concept of fracturing, and and why do you feel this fracturing is is so violent, so harmful for people in our industry? Well, there's okay. Well, there's a lot of tradition in every corner of our industry. If you are in a Michelin-starred restaurant, there's tradition of how we address each other. We chef, yes chef. There's a sushi, there's a hierarchical like hierarchical like system that we subscribe to. And when we create these like business models, we automatically just cookie cutter these traditional models directly into the next concept. And, you know, wine is very much the same in the sense that there is this tradition. It has to be a certain way. And if it's not, it's, you know, it's radical. It's wild. It's, you know, it's a it's a crazy label on the wine bottle, you know? Absolutely. Anything out of the box gets gets a side eye. Yes, exactly. And, you know, during the pandemic, I was in a whiskey a whiskey tasting with people from all over the world. And oh, can I tell you the sexism, like the way that this one guy, I don't even remember his name, but I was just like, oh my God, I, like I forgot that this thinking exists because I had come up in such, you know, in, in comparatively like a really nurturing space. I had a lot of women and femme identifying folk like in my purview and, you know, paving the way for me to come through. But this guy was like, we need, we, what happened to whiskey where we, we sit in our leather chairs and smoke cigars? And what he was saying is, what happened to a male dominated traditional white guy practice club? All he has to do is move back to England where I started my wine career. He'd be right at home. <laughs> Italian Wine Podcast. If you think you love wine as much as we do, then give us a like and a follow anywhere you get your pods. (laughs) (laughs) He was was definitely from the UK. (laughs) But it was, you know, as much as 
So when we talk about fracturing ourselves, it's when people want to be a part of a sector of an industry or a portion, or they want to enter a space and it's dominated by what someone should look like or who someone should be. Let's say, you know, that English leather couch, white guy. And so people, if someone's not an English leather couch sitting white guy, in order to enter that space and be accepted, they'll hide pieces of themselves and then they'll adopt behaviors of that type of person or what they think that kind of community wants to see so that they'll be able to fit in instead of actually being able to like be themselves and bring their experiences to it and really like, and it's a power thing, right? It's because this one dominant community doesn't want to give up power and the decision-making pieces of it. They want it to be reserved for them. They can control everybody else. Who's allowed in, who's not allowed, who can make decisions. For sure. Yeah. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a problem in that way. So, and we see this in a lot of, in a lot of different ways, not like, not just racial, but like where people come from, religious views, ideas about the future of industry. And, you know, maybe we should try something this way, like people coming from different parts of the world who have different palettes or emphasis on other flavors that maybe someone from the UK or Chicago isn't aware of. And if we only see that person as like, you know, an immigrant, as someone who should be a bar back, we're missing out as a community at large. Absolutely. And it sucks. It, 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 it's, it's very interesting. You know, we, I think we saw the tip of the iceberg with this, with the court of master sommelier, but as you say, it goes much farther than, um, you know, racism or, or misogyny, things like that. It's, um, it goes much farther into our whole socioeconomic selves and our histories socioeconomic especially in especially in wine yeah the socioeconomic in piece in wine it's a it's i'll be real it it grinds at me that in particular like you have to dress a certain way and it has to be designer otherwise like you're not like i can't go to target you know complete and you're you're in chicago i don't even want to tell you what that's like in italy i i know i know that you're sort of it, you know, you just spelled it out, uh, you know, you, you're challenging this kind of oppressive norm of Eurocentric and neurotypical mental health care and things like that. Let's just talk about this because, you know, these systems that cause all this harm and cause all this trauma and, you know, how, how can we address this? How are you addressing this? Let's sort of fill our listeners in on what you mean by Eurocentric and neurotypical and why this is harmful and how we can combat this. Yeah. I mean, for, so for, specifically from a psychological and like mental health standpoint, much of how we talk about psychology stems from Freud and like Freud, as much as like, there's a lot of good, we can find some good stuff in there. It is um, definitely antiquated at this point, but it means that the foundation of how we talk about behavior, our brains, how we interact with each other came from European culture. And so then what's harmful about that? And like, that's, I'll say this carefully, that's okay if we're looking at our experiences and our cultural models and saying like, this is how people behave within this culture. What becomes violent and what becomes really bad is when we say 
this is this is what's normal for everyone. This this what I'm experiencing right now within this culture and who I am, this is what's normal for everyone. And everyone who's outside of that is obviously disordered. Yeah, and other and just other. And other. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like even I was um attending a lecture about global leadership and um, the person, I wish I could remember her name. I'm like, oh, I should have written it down and I'm actually kind of embarrassed. But, you know, she was talking about like time and the way that, you know, Anglo folks, you know, Eurocentric folks, we view time in a different way than someone in Kenya. You know, there's, we, it, time holds a different set of power and values can be different. And even the language that we use to talk about time, like the, the example that she gave was like, 1985 was the year I was born, or I was born in 1985. Who's center, what's centered in those two statements? One centers the time, the other one centers me within that time. Um, so stuff like that. And it's, that might seem like small, but if these tiny things are building blocks, as we build a wall, it creates this massive bump in the wall. <laughs> like it's not, it's it, the more we layer on top of it, the more we have to dig back down to fix it so that it's level and doing it and doing what we think. But so for, for so many years, we saw like psychological study only like research would only happen with participants who were white Christian, you know, reportedly hetero men. And then anything outside of that, if if anyone diverged from that, it was considered disordered. It was considered wrong. And it was a tool to oppress people. And I mean, we still see glimmers, I should say, like a big shining light in a lot of therapeutic practices right now, how we approach mental health. And it's, I mean, it's a really big problem. And so what a part of what my job needs to be is constantly examining what is happening within the mental health field that might be especially oppressive or problematic and being very cognizant of not bringing that into my work when I work with restaurants, because then I'm seeing these intersections of oppression of like people in, in, in restaurants are being oppressed in the way that maybe they're not even being paid a living wage or they're being paid under the table or they have no rights. And then I come in with these like oppressive mental health narratives. It's, I have to be really, really cognizant of that. It's, it's so interesting how how these things get applied to our industry. Um, I, I know you've you've highlighted the fact that research also shows the health and well being of employees really profoundly impacts the health of the business. And mentally healthy employees obviously have lower intention to quit. They have less stress and less burnout, and they're more productive. And they're you know they're better with being loyal to their organization. But you know. Just like you were saying, when we talk about mental health as an industry, we tend to fixate on the individual without acknowledging how the working environment and the culture is contributing to the problems that we see, as you said at the beginning. And this mindset kind of absolves the employer of all responsibility of care and all accountability when they cause harm. So how do you take this evidence and, and work with, you know, all your clients, you know, businesses, restaurants, hotels, what have you, distributors, everybody who's in our industry. How do you take this sort of a evidence that we have to employers 
And, and what's their typical response? I mean, are people willing to take a look at this now in the light of the past few years? We have had a good groundswell of, of change about how we think about mental health. Is this a timely moment to bring this to employers? What do they say when you point this out to them? Oh, God, this is like the source of my personal burnout right now. <laughs> like only because people see it and there's this like, oh, wow, that's so interesting. But right now, and I'm speaking very generally because there definitely are people that are looking at research and they're taking it seriously and they're really trying to do the work within their spaces to address some of these issues. But mostly what I see is this disconnect of theory and practice that in theory, everyone's like, oh, yeah, well, obviously, if you take care of people, your business will thrive. Obviously, if you create a culture of feedback, you know, it, do it does this, 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 and this. But I don't see it actually applied. And I'm going to quote um, a friend and colleague of mine, Angela Howard, who says, we can't just keep adding on to things and expect it to, like, fix the inherent, like, deep-seated problems. So what I see a lot is this attempt to like add programs on top of whatever else has happened on top of the sludge. It's like painting over painting over a moldy wall in a rentable apartment. You know, like I don't see like the the response is usually like, well, what can we do for them to add on to what we're already doing? And that's not that's not the real thing that we have to do. We have to like strip the paint away and look at the foundation of what's going on. Yeah, back back to the bare wood. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's hard work that a lot of people don't want to do yet. And I get it. Like that's it's it's like cleaning out a refrigerator and finding like your old Tupperware containers in back. You know, you, you know that they're you know it's a problem and you know that they smell. And you know you have to get to it at some point, but you don't really, you don't. And you know it's making the rest of your food taste bad. Absolutely. Oh, man, it is a good analogy, huh? It is a good one. <laughs> it is a good one. But like, that's the work that has to be done. But a part of that work also is challenging those traditions and challenging those pieces that we identify so deeply with. Like if we grew up watching chefs yell at each other and now we are a chef, now I'm a chef. And I know that within this lineage, my job is to like yell at people because that's how I learned, you know, saying like, you know, that's really, people don't learn like that. They, they behave out of fear. It's not that like they're actually learning. Um, that becomes very challenging to someone's identity and who they are. So it's not just about doing like behavioral change or adding systems or programming. Like people have to do deep internal work to get this done. And that, I think, is where that disconnect of theory and practice happens. We know what we have to do, but it's just a matter of actually doing it. And it can be very, it can be very frustrating for me, to be honest. Like, like, it's so rough. Absolutely. I can only imagine. I can only imagine. And I think a lot of people in our industry are in complete denial about their behavior anyway. Uh, but that's, a, that's for another podcast. <laughs> well, you know, but to that, but to that point... Like I'll post something on Instagram, let's say, and I find that a lot of people are like, yes, this is so true. Oh my God, I see this all the time. And I'm like, but if everyone sees it all the time, it means that we are doing it. <laughs> it's us. <laughs> like we need to examine like 
if we see something that resonates with us, we it probably resonates because we've participated it or been complicit in it in some way or another. You know, we always see ourselves as, you know, I'll say this carefully. We see ourselves as victims of these systems, but the systems exist because we participate in them. So the work has to be both sides. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we think it's everybody else. And we, we let them carry on. Yeah, we don't, we don't stand up. Exactly. Exactly. I do think this is an industry. Yeah, I do think this is an industry that really is, is stagnant in giving people the space to stand up and find their voice and say, I don't accept this and I don't accept this behavior. It's, oh, that is, that is so real. Because we know how tough this industry is and people lose their jobs and, and can have their careers trashed by trying to speak out. So it is something that really has to be worked about. Um, and I know you started a symposium uh, you know, to sort of help people with all of these, these things, focusing on workplace wellness. And um, how does the symposium work? Who, who are the speakers? How can people get involved? How can, how can I attend? How can I come and, and listen to all of this? Because I think this is so important for everyone, but our industry in particular, I think really needs to do some heavy lifting in this area. Yeah. Okay. So the symposium this year was so dope. <laughs> like I will even, I will go back and listen. You're just going to make me jealous <laughs> well, no, you, you can still, So the way that I structured it is it's all online. It all lives online. And we launched it, um, April 18th. And for those three days, they were free. And anybody could watch the videos, ask questions. People were accessible. And, you know, it's all in the Healthy Poor Institute, which is institute.healthypoor.org. And that's where I put a lot of a lot of trainings, a lot of lectures that you can participate in. So I can't remember how many, maybe there were 14. It doesn't matter. There were a bunch of interviews. And it was a combination of um, academics, people in, you know, doing consultants who are like doing practical work out in, um, out in the world, um, and hospitality professionals. And we structured it in a way that we had a hospitality professional speaking to something, you know, be it the importance of like handbooks and structure and whatever. And then we had another professional in like the organizational psych realm or like, um, clinical psychology or whatever it is talking about it from their perspective and showing the alignment. You know, what we do a lot in this industry, and this is true in food, spirits, wine, beer, is we're so insular that we don't really look outside of our industry for resources, which drives me up the wall. <laughs> like it's it's such a thing because there are so many people, like not just like me, but like like Angela Howard, you know, like Phil Ganilka, who are doing work around like culture and perfectionism that we would really benefit from bringing into the work that we're trying to do. Like, I think the industry makes this a lot, it's hard work for sure, but we make it a lot harder than it has to be because we try to figure it out on our own. When there's people out there who can do it like in a snap, who've been doing it for many years that can help us. And I really encourage like folks listening to engage with those people. Like, you know, I don't even care if it's me, but there's other people out there who can help. Um, so the symposium brings these folks together and says, this is something that we can work on together. So we covered topics like perfectionism, like culture, like what is culture really? It's a term that's thrown around a lot. 
Um, we started looking at stuff around trauma and abuse, um, why change is so hard. So it's a really cool blend of hospitality professionals and mental health professionals and organizational folks. It's it's really neat. And so it's structured on the Institute to be both video. You can watch the video or you can download the audio and listen to it like it's a podcast. And I set it up so that if you go and sign up, you get it free for free days whenever you for three days, whenever you sign up. So if you sign up today, you have three days to listen to it all for free or you can buy it, you know, or you can like try to make a donation or you can reach out and find it. You know what I mean? I, I really just want to get this information out there. That's amazing. So it's accessible for everybody. That's really, that's, that in itself is, is very helpful. Um, I, I can see now, I didn't know the dates of it, but now I know why I missed this because it was right after Vinitaly and I was lying in a heap somewhere. So. <laughs> I understand that. Um, yeah. 17th, 18th of April. Yeah. That's, that's a blur. So. Yeah. After the symposium, I was laying in a heap for about a month. That was, it's, it's a lot of work, but y'all, there's so much good information in there, like really neat stuff. Well, that's, that's very cool that, that people can go on the website. I'm definitely going to take a look um, at what you were getting up to for the symposium. But so what are your, what are your goals coming up for, for Healthy Poor, you know, in the, in the next couple months, next year or two? Do you see yourself growing sort of more nationwide or any plans to take your work, which is really important outside of the U.S.? Um, I'm not going to name names, but Italy could use your help. I mean, I would love to. Uh, yeah. there's, there's a lot of Europe that's definitely lagging. I've, I've worked in this industry in the U.K. and in Italy and a, a little bit in Spain, a little bit in Belgium. There's, you know, there's a lot of people who need help, not just the U.S. Um, what's what are your goals? How are you going to grow? Global domination? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Perfectionism. There it is. <laughs> so what I'm working on now, we're doing all the free classes, all the free seminars, and I'm doing that because I want the education to be accessible, like I mentioned earlier. But I want people really to see the caliber of what I'm doing and what Healthy Poor is doing because it's not. It's so much more than just, ooh, let's talk about like the hospitality industry's drinking problem. Let's talk about the drinking problem we have in wine. It's deeper and thorough and um, I think exciting. It's my favorite thing to talk about. So I find it very exciting. Everything you've said today has very little to do with, you know, alcohol addiction, which we all know is a big problem in our industry. These and and the problems you've talked about today could be some of the underlying things that cause alcohol addiction in our industry. So I think, I think you're getting somewhere, you know, down to the bedrock um, rather than just the tip of the iceberg on the top that's visible. That's, that's exactly right. And, you know, it's really what healthy, where healthy pork came from in that sense is that I just, I wanted to keep going upstream to see why people were falling in, you know, instead of just always like trying to pull them out. So anyway, yeah, so we have all the classes, which I'm really excited about. Um, it's also a really great opportunity. They're all live. So like you can connect with me too, which I would love. I love talking to people. We're also starting a train the trainer program for organizations and communities that want to do the healthy poor training that I don't have to fly and teach it so that people in their own communities can take it and start providing it to their communities. So that's something we're really excited, excited about um, and working very hard on. But right now I'm doing a lot of work like from the consultancy standpoint around, I'm working with organizations to do discovery stuff. So for example, I'm flying to Baltimore next week to spend three days in a hotel interviewing 
their teams doing group workshops, really trying to figure out what's going on. What's the, di- what's the disconnect that's happening? What is, what are the main issues that aren't being said that they can't see because they're so deep in it? So that discovery work is really fun. Doing a lot of strategy work with organizations right now of like, okay, cool. So you see what the problems are. How do we address them? What interventions can we use? And as far as expanding outside of the States, and and please hire me. I would love I would love to do more work in Europe. I'm my master's the uh, organizational psych master's that I'm doing now is in London, and I decided to do that because I wanted a global look at work. I mean, what's happening in the states? There's just so much dysfunction, and not to say that this the dysfunction doesn't exist anywhere else. It's just a different kind of dysfunction, and I wanted to really learn about the nuance um, there. And I'll likely do my doctorate in in the UK as well, just because the approach to work is also very different. But then again, it, it very different, very different. Yeah. And it creates a different set of problems then too, but there's a lot that I can learn from looking at things from a global, a global standpoint. And one of the reasons I chose the prop, the program that I'm in now is because it's a distance program and I have classmates from all over the world. That's the best. That's just the best. Exactly. So we're teaching each other. Oh, it's so cool. Like someone in China being like, this is how, this is how we approach leadership. These are the values that we look at. And it's just like, wow, it's, I am, I'm just so lucky. So I didn't want to study about work in the States because work in the States is already such a mess. You know, we're obviously doing something wrong, you know, but, um, yeah, I would love to do more work in Europe. And, um, I actually think that I could make more headway probably in Europe in the States right now, definitely getting stuff done, but yeah, I it feels like running up a wet slide. Um, there are more systems in Europe that are available that I can build off of. Well, we are going to watch this space and see what you do because it would be amazing to, um, reconnect with you and hear how you, how you go about building uh, a European base. I think there's, as I said, there's a lot of heavy lifting to be done for our industry. Um, and the sooner that we get on doing it, the easier it will be to prevent, you know, new sort of burgeoning wine and spirits industries in Asia and other places from having the same problems that we've already had. So um, there isn't, you know, an ounce of prevention is a, you know, worth a pound of cure, as my grandmother always used to say. So, oh, a hundred percent. It's, it's, it's so true, though. I'm going to keep my eye on you, Laura. Um, and I hope all of our listeners will will take a look at Healthy Poor. And we're going to put all of your information in the show notes so people can get in touch with you. But it's just been really um, fascinating and illuminating to talk to you today. So thank you so much for coming on. Oh, thank you. And thank you for such thoughtful questions. Like that, This was a lot of fun. And I got to dive into some stuff that I don't normally get to. So thank you for that. I appreciate it. You're welcome. You take care. We hope you enjoyed today's episode brought to you by the Wine to Wine Business Forum 2022. This year will mark the ninth edition of the forum to be held on November 7th and 8th, 2022 in Verona, Italy. Remember, the second early bird discount on tickets will be available until September 18th. For more information, please visit us at winetowine.net.
guys, I'm Joy Livingston and I am the producer of the Italian Wine Podcast. Thank you for listening. We are the only wine podcast that has been doing a daily show since the pandemic began. This is a labor of love and we are committed to bringing you free content every day. Of course, this takes time and effort, not to mention the cost of equipment, production, and editing. We would be grateful for your donations, suggestions, requests, and ideas. For more information on how to get in touch, go to italianwinepodcast.com.